All right. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, so great to see all of you here. If you're joining us online, welcome. Uh, if you're new citizens, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at the church. Um, you know, last week I preached on uh, denying self, and I made the great mistake of asking God to humble me. And a pro tip uh, for the future, don't ask God to humble you, because he will. Um, this past week was just a crazy week uh, for, for me and my family. One of those weeks where like any, everything bad that could possibly happen happened. Um, and then this morning, you know, I was like, I mean, it can't get any worse than this. I got a call from a staff member uh, at 7 in the morning, and uh, she was at our church office picking up some stuff and literally walked into a live burglary attempt of our church office. And so, uh, I mean, I was there waiting for the police to come, and I, I prayed, I was like, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because, uh, you know, you can, like, you know, take the foot off the, the accelerator for just a little bit. Um, but thankfully, everyone's okay. Nobody's hurt. But if you could continue to keep uh, our church, our family, our staff in your prayers, um, you know, I as a church, we don't talk about spiritual warfare a lot, but I really do believe that uh, this is the enemy attacking us. And so uh, if you could just, when you have a moment, uh, continue to lift up our community, that would be great. Um, well, uh, with that, I have the great privilege of bringing us God's word. Um, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Mark, we're looking at chapter 10, uh, verses 13 to 16. Okay, so just four verses here, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. If you can choose your translation, um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Mark 10, 13 to 16, this is the reading of God's word. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Amen. Um, well, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we are in a series right now through the book of Mark. And um, every passage we're looking at is meant to show us a glimpse of the real Jesus. Um, one of the reasons we're doing this series is because we realize that uh, for a lot of us, the Jesus uh, we've inherited, uh, whether from our parents or our, our church leaders or different caretakers, that Jesus often doesn't reflect the Jesus we see in the scriptures. You know, and, and so our hope with this series is to kind of recover who the real Jesus is. And uh, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we're, we've looked at a Jesus who moves toward the oppressed and the forgotten, a Jesus who eats with tax collectors and sinners, uh, a Jesus who doesn't exist to give us just the things that we want, but a Jesus who dies on a cross to give us what we need. And today we find ourselves in Mark 10, and uh, not sure if you've noticed, but we've been working through this book chronologically, and, and I wish we could have preached actually like every single passage through the Gospel of Mark, but we're trying to kind of keep in step with our community groups that are doing uh, different inductive Bible studies every week, and so um, we're kind of skipping around, but just to recap for us, um, fill in the gap, last week 
we looked at a passage where Jesus predicts his death for the first time. And, and obviously his disciples, uh, they don't get it because his disciples are like, wait, you know, you're, you're supposed to be this long-awaited king. You're not supposed to die. And even after Jesus rebukes Peter pretty sharply in front of his disciples, in the very next chapter, chapter 9, uh, Jesus predicts his death a second time. And when Jesus does that, it's because his disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. Okay, so obviously the disciples aren't getting it because they're still uh, vying for greatness and power and control. They don't understand that to be a, a follower, to live in the kingdom of God is not for your life to move up and to the right, but for your life to go to the bottom. They don't understand that to live in the kingdom of God, it's a kingdom where the first uh, will be last and the last will be first. And to illustrate this, Jesus in chapter 9 uh, takes this little child in chapter 9 verse 36 and he takes his little child into his arms and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Jesus identifies with the child and says, there's something about this child that gets at the heart of what it means to live in my kingdom. But this is how hard-headed the disciples are. Because in the very next chapter after that, in the passage we're looking at today in Mark 10, you have all these parents bringing their children to Jesus for him to lay hands on them. And it says the disciples are rebuking them. And, and that word rebuke is a strong word. It's the same word used throughout the Gospel of Mark when the disciples are rebuking the demons. Okay, so these disciples are pissed at these parents because they feel like these children are getting in the way. These children are a nuisance. They're an interruption. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Like, they're not in the way. This is the kingdom. These children are the kingdom. You know, um, not sure if you guys know this, but every week across campus we have a whole army of children's ministry volunteers who love on our children uh, who, who teach them the bible who, who take care of them and um, i have a i have a service for them every week and and this morning um, as we were going through this text i said to them you know i know that sometimes it feels like you're babysitting for us you know like you know you're getting the kids out of the way so that the real work of ministry can happen. And I told them, you're doing the real work of ministry. The children are the kingdom. This is what Jesus says. And he says, don't hinder them. Listen to what he says. Um, you know, uh, it says Jesus was indignant, right? If you've been with us, you remember that word from week two and both times in Mark's gospel that Jesus is described as being indignant. It's when someone Jesus loves is prevented from coming to him. Nothing angers Jesus more than when people try to gatekeep the kingdom. And so here in chapter 10, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And I kind of want to unpack this for us. Uh, because throughout the Gospels, there's this recurring theme about needing to become like a child to enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean, right? We hear that phrase all the time, like having a childlike faith. Um, but, but what do you do then with passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 20, where Paul says, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children, or 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about people who are spiritual infants who need to grow up and mature in the faith. Like, so on one hand, you have Jesus telling people, you need to become like these children. On the other hand, you have the Apostle Paul saying, well, you got to mature and you got to grow up. Who's right? You know, what, what does that mean? And I think it's both. 
Now, I think oftentimes we think that maturity in the Christian life is acquiring more knowledge. It's becoming more, you know, acquiring more theology. It's about gaining more life experience. And yet Jesus is saying, no, true discipleship, true spiritual maturity looks like becoming more childlike. It looks like becoming a child. And let me flesh that out for us a little bit. What does it mean to be like a child? And there are just two things. Helplessness and confidence. Helplessness and confidence. And these two things feel kind of opposed to each other, but let me explain. Number one, helplessness. Uh, Every newborn is unique and beautiful in his or her own way, but one thing that all newborns have in common is that they're utterly helpless. They, 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 They don't do anything that contributes to society, right? They can't do anything on their own. And you know, this can sound harsh, and, and I'm a parent, and this can sound like I'm a heartless parent, but honestly, like, objectively speaking, children are useless, okay? They, they don't, uh, like, uh, they don't do anything about value for society. They need so much love. They need so much protection. They need so much care, and yet they don't possess the capacity to give anything in return. I think it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't say whoever gives the kingdom of God like a child. No, he says whoever receives the kingdom of God like a child because that's all young children do. They just receive. They don't have anything to give. They just take. You know, uh, this past week I was yelling at my three-year-old son Jack because you know, he's been saying some crazy things, and he was like, Daddy, get out of the house. And I, and I was like, get out of the house? I was like, is this your house? He's like, yes. And I was like, uh, do you pay the bills? He's like, yes. I was like, you do? I was like, what's your job? He was like, being cute. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know I'm, and I'm trying to be mad, but I'm looking at my wife in the back, and she's like, oh, I mean, come on, that's so cute. You know, but I mean, thank God. Babies and children are cute, or else parents would not have multiple children, right? They don't pull their weight. They don't pay the bills. They don't cook. They don't clean. They're expensive. They're dirty. You know, like, uh, objectively speaking, it's crazy that parents have child after child after child, and yet this is the point. And I think we sentimentalize kids a lot in our culture. You know, like, I think there's this, like, strong childolatry and strong attachment to children um, in our culture. You know, like, I, I go to a lot of first birthday parties now, and they, I mean, you can't tell the difference between weddings and first birthday parties now. They're just, just as extravagant, right? And, and I talk to any parent in this room. I mean, you know, you rearrange your entire life around your kids. You rearrange your work schedules around their schedules. You got to take them to one class, to the next class, extracurricular activity after activity. I mean, our lives revolve around our kids, but you have to understand that in ancient Jewish society, it wasn't even like that. In ancient Jewish society, not only did they view children as useless, I mean, children were at the absolute bottom of the social hierarchy with women and with slaves. If anything, parents were just waiting for their kids to grow up. A father could pretty much do or say anything he wanted to his kids. You know, like at least now we have laws that protect against neglect and abuse. Not in ancient Jewish society. Because children held no inherent value or status or prestige. Any value children possessed was derived from their relationship to their dad. That was it. Outside of that, 
they had no significance for society. And so you have to understand how inconceivable it is that Jesus points to this child and he says, that's what my kingdom looks like. He said, you want to belong to my kingdom? Become like that. Become powerless, become helpless, become completely vulnerable. And Jesus is making the point that his kingdom is for people who understand and embrace their need. Now, here is the big problem with that. We live in a world right now that literally trains us to avoid vulnerability and powerlessness at all costs, right? Why do we work to acquire so much wealth and status? Why? So that we don't have to depend on anyone, so that we can be self-sufficient, so that we can be independent, right? Nobody wants to be known as being weak. I don't know anybody who wants the reputation of being weak. Nobody wants to be known as the weak parent, right? You want to be known as the parent who can juggle a full-time job, manage their household, and be fully present with their kids, right? Nobody wants to be a weak boss who can't handle the stress of running their own company. Nobody wants to be a weak worker who can't hang with all their other colleagues. Everyone wants to be strong and ambitious and successful and somehow at the same time be super relational and giving and sacrificial. We all want to be known as strong. And I would say even when we're not like this, you know, we live in a world that makes it so easy to fake it. We live in a digital age. We live in a world where social media allows us to basically hide behind a, a facade. We, social media allows us to curate a certain strong image of ourselves that even though we're dying on the inside, even though we're lonely and depressed and anxious, we don't have to show our weakness to anyone. We can project a certain level of strength to the people out there so that they feel like it's easy for us, so that it looks like we have it all put together. Brene Brown, um, who is like a foremost expert on shame and vulnerability, uh, her TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability is probably the most viewed uh, TED Talk out there. And she says that vulnerability is the willingness to show up and share your authentic self while knowing that you have no control over the outcomes of your interactions. Put another way, vulnerability is being seen for who you really are. Now, here's why that's so terrifying for people. Right? Because underneath our well-kept homes, underneath our beautiful exterior, underneath all the things we do to put up, put up a certain front, underneath all that, we're all just broken people crying out for help. At the end of the day, we're all just scared of being forgotten and left behind. We're scared about what the future holds. We're anxious. We're ashamed of our mistakes and failures and our past baggage. And Jesus says, you want to live in my kingdom? It starts with acknowledging your weakness. You know, one of the things that's so incredible about children is that they're not afraid to ask for help. They're not afraid to tell you they're tired. You know, my kids always, all the time, we're walking somewhere and they'll say, Daddy, up. You know, they'll hold their hands up. Daddy, up. Can you carry me? I'm, t I'm so tired. They're not afraid to do that. And this is why it's so, so amazing and profound that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, this guy who has just an amazing resume, he has so many things he can fall back on. But he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses 
so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is Paul saying, Daddy, up. I can't walk on my own. So I boast in my weakness. Because for when I am weak, Christ is strong. If you're new to Christianity and you're joining us today, you know, a question I get all the time from people checking out the faith and people who are curious is, what do I need to do to belong here? And I say, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. All you need is need. The kingdom of God is not for the strong, but for the helpless and for the weak. Now, there's a second aspect to becoming like a child, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, but not only are children completely helpless and vulnerable, they're at the same time incredibly confident, okay? That doesn't make any sense, okay, because uh, you would never be confident if you were powerless and helpless. In fact, we feel like they're, they're completely opposed to each other. A powerless person is the last person who would be confident in this world, and it's because in our culture, you derive your confidence from what? From what you look like. You derive your confidence from your job title. You derive your confidence from what you do, from your accomplishments and what you bring to the table. You derive your confidence from your self-sufficiency. But isn't it funny that as, as helpless and powerless as children are, they're strangely so confident. They have no inhibitions. They don't mind walking up to an adult with boogers hanging out of their nose, being like, look at me, right? They fart, burp whenever they want. They laugh it off. They don't care what other people think. They're not so obsessed with protecting their image or their reputation. And one of the saddest things about watching your kids grow up is watching them start to care what everyone thinks. It's so sad. Um, you know, this past week I was wearing a neck brace you know, I mean, it's kind of ironic that I'm not wearing it right now because my wife told me nobody's going to take you seriously if you wear your neck brace. But, uh, but I was wearing my neck brace because, you know, uh, one of the things that went wrong this week was I was walking my dog and I come out of my house and no joke, literally a cyclist just ran right over me and um, got like severe whiplash and um, was wearing a neck brace all week and I took my kids to the Korean grocery store and we're getting out of the car and my six-year-old daughter, Avery, she's like, hey, uh, Daddy, can, can you take off your neck brace? And I was like, what? I was like, my neck hurts. And she was like, I know, but it looks weird. <laughs> it was so sad. Broke my heart. But you see, this is what happens as you get older. You learn what to fear. You learn to fear rejection. You learn to fear failure and uncertainty and insignificance. And that confidence we once had as kids starts to go away. And so what do we do? We try to produce that confidence on our own. What do we do? How do we do that? C climb the corporate ladder. Alter our body and our faces uh, to make it more aligned with the world's standards of beauty. Amass followers and likes. And at the end of the day, we just end up less confident and more insecure than we were when we started. Because you see, we buy into the lie that confidence is something we can produce on our own. Why do you think we're always telling people, you just need to believe in yourself and have more confidence? Or we say things like, oh man, that guy has so many things to offer, he just needs more confidence. 
as though confidence is something we can produce on our own. No, true confidence doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from outside of ourselves. True confidence does not come from ourselves. It has to come from outside of ourselves. Um, a good friend of mine from college just got married a month ago, and before he met his now wife, uh, he was in this long relationship, um, and he was w in this relationship with a girl who would just emasculate him at every turn. She was just constantly criticizing him, and a lot of it was in, in, in jest and in fun, but I mean, like, she was just, it was implicitly or explicitly telling him he wasn't measuring up, he wasn't good enough. She would always complain about how he's been at the same job for how many years and has never been promoted. Um, and, and over time, we just, all our friends just watched him become a shell of himself. And I remember hanging out with them in, in our 20s, and this guy who was a goofy dude in college, he was just, so soft-spoken, reserved, you know, I was like, who are you? In my mind, you know, I was like, who is this guy? You know, this isn't, this isn't my friend. Well, in the end, they ended up breaking up, and fast forward a few years, uh, he meets this new girl who is now his wife, and, you know, to an almost uncomfortable degree, she was just so in love with him. Like, he, she just thought the world of him. He could do no wrong. I mean, she laughed a little too hard at all his jokes. Um, you know, she was, she, you know, for her, the fact that he was at the same company for almost a decade was not a sign of, of his, like, not having ambition. It was a sign of his loyalty and commitment. You know, and it, it was just so crazy how his circumstances did not change, but depending on how you framed it, you know, it, depending on the person he was with, like, it, he just felt like a different guy and it was crazy because last year during the pandemic he was actually promoted to be the head of his department and last month I remember watching all these uh, insta stories of his wedding and I couldn't go because it was on the east coast but I watched all these insta stories of his wedding and I saw all these videos of him dancing at the reception he's a horrible dancer but he was like he was going all out he was getting in there and I was like there's the mic I remember oh shoot I said his name Sorry, uh, oh, um, Mike, if you're listening to this, I, I love you, bro. Um, but I, I was like, you know, there's the guy I remember, you know, and, I, and you realize like nothing changed. Where did his confidence come from? Not himself. It came from outside of him. It was given to him. Where does a child's confidence come from? Not from themselves, because they can't produce it on their own. They have nothing that would warrant confidence. A child's confidence comes from knowing they're loved and accepted, no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter how they fail or what mistakes they've made. I can tell you sometimes, you know, our kids will, will get in big trouble from, from me or my wife, because uh, they did something bad or they said something to each other or got into a fight or whatever, and somehow, like, they're crying and they just got in big trouble. In the next breath, they'll be able to say, I'm hungry, can you feed me? Where does that confidence come from? The nerve to ask your parents that after they just yelled at you, 
How can they do that? It's because they instinctively know that their relationship with us isn't contingent on their performance. There's something in them that knows they can't earn our love. You know, of all the ways uh, Jesus could have addressed God when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he doesn't say, Lord Almighty. He doesn't say King of Kings. He doesn't, say, he doesn't even say God. He says, call him Father, our Father. What is Jesus getting at here? We don't earn the right to become someone's son or daughter. It's a gift given to us. And God says, why are you breaking your back trying to earn something that's already yours in Jesus? Friends, the gospel is the only truth that makes you feel simultaneously helpless and confident. Nothing else in the world will do that. Everything else in our cultural narrative says the less helpless you are, the more confident you become. But only the gospel makes you both completely helpless and completely confident. Helpless because we know we can't save ourselves. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short. There's nothing we can accomplish or buy or earn that will ever make us good enough. We're always going to fall miserably short of the mark, but at the same time, the gospel gives us an unshakable confidence because though we can't make ourselves good enough, the good news is that Jesus died as an offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through his blood. So every time we feel like we're failing as a parent, Every time we feel like we're failing as a spouse, every time we feel like we're not measuring up in our job or in our friendships, we can look at the cross and we can say, though we're not good enough, Jesus is good enough and Jesus makes us good enough. It's the most freeing thing you could ever experience. You know, isn't it so funny that we work so hard in life to be free? You know, and, and we do so many things just to be free, to not be helpless, to not be self to, to be more self-sufficient, and yet in the process we end up becoming more enslaved. And even when we do finally achieve those things and accomplish those things that we think will give us the confidence we need, we land a new job or we get that promotion or we get in a relationship and we think we should have the confidence, we know that that confidence is standing on shaky ground. We know that it's just a moment because the moment someone surpasses us, the moment someone criticizes us, or the moment we watch someone do it better than us, all of a sudden that confidence is gone. Where do we get true, lasting confidence and peace? And Jesus says, it's from me. Jesus says, stop living like this. Become like a child and receive this free gift of grace. Uh, you know, this past week I mentioned before, it was just an insane week uh, for our family. You know, first thing that happened was our power went out, and then we looked, had the electrician look at our sub-panel, and he was like, oh, it's weird. It looks like it went out because water got in here. You know, have you had a leak? And we're like, no. And the very next day we see bubbles all over our walls and ceilings. Carol and I, we start, like, poking holes in the bubbles, and water just starts flowing out. Uh, and our, our house was a disaster area this past week because we've had contractors come in and out repairing, stripping it of its drywall. 
So we were at a hotel for a few days with the kids. We came back yesterday to check on the home. We walk in and our living room now is full of water because our living room ceiling uh, had a burst pipe and everything caved in and we're just, we're like, oh my goodness. You know, I'm standing there still with my neck brace on and Carol's looking at me like, oh, oh God. Like our family's just a hot mess. And, and, and we're just, what are we, we're like standing there like, what are we going to do? And we look over at our kids, and, and Jack is like pretend showering underneath the leak. You know, Jack and Avery are giving each other high fives because they're like, that means we get to go to another hotel. You know, and they have no idea the things going through our minds. We're freaking out. We're like, I don't know if insurance is going to be able to cover all this. Where are we going to stay? We got to make other reservations. Is there a plumber that'll come out on Saturday afternoon? Like when, how long is this going to take? You know, we're packing their clothes and the groceries and getting food and, and unplugging everything, shutting the water off. There's all this stuff that's going through our mind. And we look at them and they're just free. Where do they get the confidence and the trust to know that things are going to be okay? It's not because they're in control. They don't have a plan that we don't know about. It's because at the end of the day, there's something in them that knows they're going to be taken care of. My parents got it. Let my parents deal with the anxiety and the stress, and we're just going to have fun. And we get to go to a hotel. This is great. And this is what the gospel, living in the gospel, feels like. It doesn't mean we don't acknowledge all the things that are happening. You know, it's not just like ignoring or escaping. But at the end of the day, it's understanding that we're not in control of our lives, but we have a Heavenly Father who loves us, who stopped at nothing to take care of our biggest need. And so that Heavenly Father is also the one who's going to sustain us every day of our lives helpless yet confident this is what the gospel does it allows us to surrender control knowing that the same god the same god who climbed up on a cross and paid for our sins he's the god who's taking care of us he's the god who loves us and who will sustain us you know there was a guy in my church growing up and every worship service uh, he would sit in the front row and he would worship like this called it uh, the touchdown stance right and um, he would just sit there and he would weep every service and um, you know we just we we thought he was like the most holy spiritual man you know we used to make fun of him you know we used to call him the fourth member of the trinity like every time like we would get touched to him we're like oh my gosh i was touched by your holiness you know and and i used to look at him and be like there i'm never going to be like that I'm never going to have a vibrant relationship with God like that. And and to us, he was just this larger-than-life spiritual juggernaut. But I thought about him a lot as I was prepping this sermon, and I started thinking, huh, that's what he looked like to us. I wonder what he looked like to God. What did he look like from God's perspective looking down? And I think, what if he was a child being like, Daddy, up? Dad, can you carry me? Because I can't walk on my own. 
Dad, I'm so tired. I need your help. What if it was not a sign of spiritual strength? What if his tears were tears of desperation? What if he was saying, I don't know how I'm going to do this. What if the way that he was mature is not just not because he knew more than us or did more spiritual activities? What if he was just somebody who understood his desperate need for Jesus? And as I was thinking about him and prepping this sermon, I was like, that's it. That's what living in the gospel looks like. That's what allowing the good news to penetrate our hearts looks like. And so uh, this morning, um, I want to do something. I'm going to invite us to stand. I'm going to invite our worship team to come, come back up here. Uh, I know we don't always do things like this uh, at our church, uh, but I just feel um, really led by the Spirit here um, to lead us in something. If you're new to Christianity or you feel uncomfortable, don't feel pressured in any way to do this. Uh, but for everyone else, if you would just open your hands like this, both your hands, um, it's just a posture of receiving. We could just close our eyes, bow our heads. And the one question I would ask is, what is it that you're trying to carry on your own that you know you can't? Who is it that you're trying to be? What image are you trying to preserve or protect that you can? What is it that you're trying to carry on your own that you know you can? Is it your family? Is it your career? Is it a relationship? Is it your loneliness or anxiety? Is it your future? And holding our hands open in the quietness of our hearts, I just want us to say a simple prayer. God, can you carry this? Because I can't carry it myself. God, can you carry me? Because I can't carry myself. Father, we come open-handed this morning, understanding that we're so helpless on our own. And we try to put up different facades and we try to project different images of ourselves that make it seem like we have it all put together. But at the end of the day, we're powerless. We're so broken. We're so lost. And we need you. God, we're so tired of the cultural narratives that tell us that we need to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, that tells us to just try harder, strive harder. Because God, no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to find that unshakable confidence. It's so fleeting. But Lord, we thank you for your son because on the cross, you showed us what you were willing to do for our sake, and you did what we could never do on our own. 
through your perfect life and your sacrificial death. And so we cling to you this morning and we say, God, can you carry me? Because we can't carry ourselves. Thank you for this freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you for the good news that we can't earn your love, that there's nothing we could do to be more loved by you. Remind us of that this morning. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that continues to sustain us each day. We worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.